Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Takeshita is the Chief of Optometric Services for the Center for the Partially Sighted here in Los Angeles. And my name is Sue Strafasi. I'm, I'm from Braille Institute, um, Director of Child Development, and we are just pleased to bring you this telephone um, education series every month. And as Dr. Bill uh, mentioned, the, these recordings will be available on www.brailleinstitute.org and at www.airsla.org. So without further ado, I just want to turn it over to Dr. Bill. He has lots to tell us tonight. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Sue, again, for putting this together. And tonight, I really want to thank all of you. I mean, we have people from all over the United States, and I know for many of you, it's, it's quite late as we're doing this recording. But uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about some of the other types of complications or consequences of optic nerve hypoplasia. And the first thing I just want to share with all of you is that Optic nerve hypoplasia is something that we as doctors and eye care professionals, we're really learning a lot about this condition. I know that about 20 years ago, it was very, very rare that we would hear about children who had optic nerve hypoplasia. But today, we see that this is really one of the fastest growing causes of vision impairment among children. So the first question is, what is optic nerve hypoplasia. And to understand what this condition is, we have to do a little bit of anatomy and renew, review how does vision actually work. Well, in the human being, we do have two eyeballs, and inside each eye is a tissue called the retina. Now, the purpose of the retina is to absorb the light energy from whatever it is that we're looking at and these electrical signals are then sent to the back of the brain through a nerve, which is called the optic nerve. Now, many people tend to think that the optic nerve is just a single wire or just a single little cable or a single thread. But in reality, the optic nerve is made up of millions of fibers. So even though it might look very similar to the cable that your digital TV comes in. It really is made up of something much more complicated where inside that nerve there are actually millions of fibers. So as a result, there are some children who are born with optic nerve hypoplasia. And what hypo means, it means that it is not fully developed in size. So as a result, a child may be born with optic nerve hypoplasia and they look at your face. The picture of your face focuses onto the retina and as it is then sent through the optic nerve, there just aren't enough fibers that are sending that signal to the brain. Another analogy to think of it is just the way that we make telephone calls from the United States to Europe. You might remember there was a time that we were so pleased that there was the transatlantic cable, and this was a huge telephone cable that contained many, many smaller cables, and that was what allowed people in the United States to make phone calls to people in Europe. Well, the same thing happens in optic neuropipoplasia. If you do not have enough cables, then you just cannot pass that information from one place to the other. Now, there has been a lot of research 
performed on optic nerve hypoplasia. And here in Los Angeles, Dr. Mark Borchert is one of the doctors who is very, very interested in this condition. One of the things that we do know about it is the fact that we do not know of a very specific cause of the condition. It has not been identified with a specific gene, so we do not feel that this is something that is inherited genetically. In other words, this does not mean that if mom has optic nerve hypoplasia or that if dad has optic nerve hypoplasia, that all the children would automatically get that. So we also know that there are some other factors that are strongly correlated with optic nerve hypoplasia. It is more common among younger mothers. When we see mothers who are 18, 19, 20, these mothers often give birth to children with optic nerve hypoplasia. Do we know what is the cause of it? We don't know what is that relationship, but we know that there is a correlation where younger mothers may have children with optic nerve hypoplasia. We also see that it is more common in mothers who experience gestational diabetes. When some mothers are pregnant, their blood sugar tends to increase and they then develop diabetes. And these children sometimes will have optic nerve hypoplasia. But overall, we do not know of a specific cause. We cannot say, for example, that it is caused by not taking enough vitamins or by not eating the right foods or drinking alcohol or taking drugs. We cannot say that any of those factors are the cause. But we do feel that there are some correlating factors that lead us to believe that it is related to environmental factors. In other words, it may be related to what are things in our environment and there are additional studies being performed. Perhaps it's related to different types of pesticides. It could be related to different pollution. It could be related to something in the water. We don't really know, but that is something that is being studied more. Now, one of the things that we also want to share about optic nerve hypoplasia is that optic nerve hypoplasia is a condition that is usually stable. And what we mean by that is that we find that the optic nerves that the child does have, we do not tend to see that these optic nerves die. So as a result, let's say that you have a child who is three years old and this child has optic nerve hypoplasia. One question that you might ask is, can I expect my child to one day lose all of her vision? And the answer to that is no. We usually see that the optic nerves that are present in these children, that those nerves are most often stable. The next question is, well, can I expect that my child's vision will improve? In other words, as my child grows, will my child be able to develop and grow more optic nerve fibers, and will his or her vision one day become normal? And the answer to that is also no. We do not observe that children with optic nerve hypoplasia develop more nerve fibers in the optic nerve. But what's very, very interesting, I've been in the field of working with children for over 25 years now, 
And there is one thing that I very often do observe with children with optic nerve hypoplasia is that they may come back year after year, and as we measure the vision of these children, their vision often will measure at a higher level. Now, this does not mean that the child has developed new nerves, but we find that these children have become smarter. The visual cortex region of the brain, where the visual information is processed, it becomes smarter. So when the child sees a letter on the wall, the child is now smarter, and the child is able to figure out that that blurred letter is the letter G. Whereas maybe a year ago, the child did not have that type of processing ability. So it's very, very often that we see a child where their visual acuity may improve year after year. For example, a three-year-old, that child's visual acuity might measure 20 over 400. And then the following year, the child comes in and the visual acuity measures 20 over 300. And the following year, it measures 20 over 200. Now, we often become very, very happy because of this improvement, but this is not an indication that the nerve fibers are growing. It is more often an indication that the visual part of the brain is processing information much, much better. Now, as a result, we often will find that children who have optic nerve hypoplasia may very often function much, much better than children with other types of conditions, such as Stargardt's disease, or if a child develops an injury to the eyes and loses a vision. In other words, if we compare the function of a child who has 20 over 200 visual acuity with optic nerve hypoplasia with another child who has 20 over 200 visual acuity with another disease, such as Stargardt's disease, we often will see that the child with optic nerve hypoplasia may function at a much, much higher level than the child with the Stargardt's disease. One of the reasons for this is that with optic nerve hypoplasia, the child was born with that condition, and each year after year, that child then learns how to process the visual information better. Whereas a child who had normal vision and then developed a loss of vision at the age of 10 or 12, those children often have more difficulties processing their visual information and they may not be able to function quite as well. So the main point to all of this is that overall, in general, I would say that optic nerve hypoplasia, even though it is a condition that we see more and more and more often, we find that this is a condition that in many ways, as eye doctors, we enjoy seeing patients with this condition. And the reason that we enjoy it is that we do not see this as being a condition that is progressive, where the child's vision gets worse and worse and worse. Number two, we often find that children born with optic nerve hypoplasia, they function much better 
then the measurements of their visual acuity may predict. And number three, the children with optic nerve hypoplasia who do have some vision, they often respond very, very well to low vision aids, electronic technology, and other types of accommodations that the low vision eye doctor may make. Now recently we had Dr. Mark Borchard on our show and he talked to us about the latest developments with optic nerve hypoplasia. You could find that podcast again at www.brailleinstitute.org and also at www.airsla.org. But one of the things that I thought was really very, very interesting and provoked the reason that we're doing this podcast this evening is that Dr. Borchert basically stated that he tends to think of children with optic nerve hypoplasia as having a syndrome. And that was something that was very, very surprising to me because I have never heard it being described as a syndrome. Now, in optic nerve hypoplasia, we sometimes will see that optic nerve hypoplasia will often be described as a different condition called septo-optic dysplasia. And you spell that S-E-P-T-O, septo-optic, O-P-T-I-C, dysplasia. And the main difference between these two conditions or these two diagnoses are really the fact that there is a structure there is a structure in the brain that is called the septum pellucidum, which is missing in children with septo-optic dysplasia. Both diagnoses do have optic nerve hypoplasia, but the children who have the diagnosis of septo-optic dysplasia, they also are missing this structure in the brain. But according to Dr. Borchert, he says, functionally speaking, the functional differences between the children with these two diagnoses are really very minimal, and in many cases, you do not observe a functional difference between the two. As a result, we can often think of children with optic nerve hypoplasia and septo-optic dysplasia as just having optic nerve hypoplasia. In other words, we do not have to try to separate the two different types of conditions. Now, the main interesting factor between optic nerve hypoplasia and septo-optic dysplasia is that these children really may not have any functional differences in their vision. For example, we cannot say that the child with septo-optic dysplasia will have better vision or worse vision than the child who only has optic nerve hypoplasia. So to make things a little bit easier, as we talk about children with optic nerve hypoplasia tonight, we're just going to simply call it optic nerve hypoplasia. We're not going to categorize one diagnosis as optic nerve hypoplasia, and the other is septo-optic dysplasia. So regardless of what your child that you're working with, 
has been diagnosed with, we're going to both call all of them optic nerve hypoplasia. Now, when we think about the syndrome, what does that really mean? What it really means is that children with optic nerve hypoplasia are very, very interesting children to study because when we look at them as an entire human being, we often will see that they may have other factors that can affect their overall development. And as you all know, one of the things that we feel is very, very important is the early child development, the early intervention. So the first thing is that we want to make certain that the child has the appropriate team of professionals to treat the possibilities that are associated with a syndrome. The first is that we do recommend that all children will have a pediatric ophthalmologist. Now, an ophthalmologist is a medical doctor who has been trained to diagnose and treat eye disorders with the use of medications and surgery. Now, many ophthalmologists are actually neuro-ophthalmologists, and these are the doctors who really specialize in the nerves. So, for example, some of you may know Dr. Mark Borchert out here in Los Angeles. He is a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist. So the majority of his practice is going to involve those children who have visual problems that are due to the nervous system of the brain and the eyes. So you want to have a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist or a pediatric ophthalmologist to perform that examination to diagnose optic nerve hypoplasia. To a pediatrician, I really don't think that it's always that easy to diagnose optic nerve hypoplasia. The reason for this is that if you are not accustomed to looking at optic nerves all day, every day, you may not be able to tell that this optic nerve is 10 or 20 or 30% smaller. For some children, depending on whether they're farsighted or nearsighted, their optic nerves may appear to be bigger or smaller. So you want a pediatric neuro-ophthalmologist to take a look. Secondly, you then want to have a low-vision optometrist or a low-vision ophthalmologist to evaluate the child after. The reason for this is that the low-vision optometrist will do a functional vision assessment to tell you what your child is able to see. Your doctor will be able to tell you whether or not your child could see certain colors better than others. What distance does your child see best? So you will know what distance to position toys and yourself from your baby so that your baby could see you. The optometrist will then design and prescribe glasses and specialized low vision glasses that could magnify the images so the child could see better. They would recommend the appropriate type of lighting. What type of light bulb should you use? What colors should these light bulbs be? They will often recommend different activities and vision stimulation exercises to attempt to stimulate the pathway from the eye to the brain. So this is something that is very, very effective. It's very, very popular, and today 
we know that many parents have the iPad. There are many applications available on the iPad, and these applications have high-contrast patterns, and many babies with optic neuropipalplasia enjoy looking at these patterns, and this stimulates the connections between the eye and the brain. The doctor may recommend the use of a light box, the little room. There's all sorts of different types of patterns and colors and toys that are very, very effective. Now, the third person that you need is you really want to have a person who is going to be an endocrinologist. The reason for this is that many children with optic nerve hypoplasia will have an abnormal, their endocrine system that produces hormones for the body is not normal. For some children, it may mean that they are lacking growth hormones. So some children with optic nerve hypoplasia are much smaller than normal. Other children, they may have hormonal problems where they cannot produce the appropriate hormones that will allow them to quench their thirst. Some children are always thirsty and all they want to do is drink, drink, drink. And because they drink so much, all they do is pee, pee, pee. And many times then the parents often think that these children have diabetes. Well, in these cases, this has nothing to do with abnormal blood sugar in the blood. But it's basically that the child is having problems where the child cannot quench the thirst and is always in drinking. The endocrinologist will also perform other types of tests of the hormones to see if there's other abnormalities. There might be hormonal differences that can affect the way that the child sleeps. It might affect the child's behavior. The child might be cranky. And many of these types of behavioral problems can be resolved with the appropriate types of hormones. And we know that when a child sleeps well and is rested, they actually develop much better. We could plague with them. We could teach them things, and they're not as fussy, and they respond so, so much better. So we want the child to then also be seen by the endocrinologist. It's really very, very amazing the number of times that we see children that have never been seen by endocrinologists. Next, we want your child also to be seen by an early intervention specialist or a teacher for the visually impaired who works with young children. The reason that this is so important is that they often can provide you with many helpful ideas as to how to modify your home. Here in Los Angeles, our doctors at the Center for the Partially Sighted, we work very closely with the child development staff at Braille Institute. So when a child has ONH, optic nerve hypoplasia, the Braille Institute staff will bring the child in and they sit in on the evaluation. At that time, we make the recommendations as what colors, what type of light bulbs, what distance should the lighting be, what color lights and walls should be around the home, what about carpeting, or many families really just can't afford it, and we will teach them how to make a vision stimulation area in their home, maybe by putting up some poster board and other high contrast patterns. So the child development specialist from Braille will go to the homes of the family 
and help them to make this particular type of visually stimulating room and to teach the parents and the family members how to do these activities. The more that the family performs these types of activities, the greater chance that the child can develop more and more vision. Also, what's really nice is that the teacher for the visually impaired or the child development staff, they really are a great source of communication with the family. There's many times that families don't want to say things to the doctors or they don't want to ask questions. And when they give those questions to the child development specialist, they relay them to us and we could then call them or we could relay the answers backwards. So this is something that's very, very helpful. The next person on the team is to have an occupational therapist to evaluate your child. Now, occupational therapists are really very, very remarkable therapists. They do all sorts of different things to help the child to perform the activities that the child should be doing at that stage in his or her life. In some cases, they're going to help the child to feed. Other times, they're going to help the child to learn to reach or to crawl or to stand or to balance or just even to play. One of the things that we find is that many, many children with optic nerve hypoplasia, they have delays in their motor system, especially their fine motor skills. And so these children very often may not be very accurate when they are reaching for a toy or maybe they're reaching for a bottle to drink something or they're reaching for a cup. Many times their hands don't necessarily do what they want them to do. These kids, as they grow older, I very often see that these five, six, seven-year-old kids have significant difficulty with coloring. They can't draw. They have difficulty with printing, and much of the problem is because of their fine motor skills. Now, one of the things that we know is that when we look more carefully at those fibers in the optic nerve, we know that some of those fibers in the optic nerve are not directly responsible for vision, but they go to other parts of the brain that control some of our motor system. As a result, if a child has a smaller than normal optic nerve, the information that goes to the other areas of the brain that control motor skills, a lot of times that is less. And so these children often will benefit from receiving occupational therapy. When kids receive the occupational therapy, we see many, many changes. Many times kids are having difficulties with crawling or they can't sit independently or they're having difficulties with chewing or grabbing, and they often make really tremendous, tremendous gains. As they get older, depending on their developmental age, the occupational therapist will often change the activities and make them more appropriate for that stage in their life. Many children who do have optic nerve hypoplasia, they may be a bit clumsy or they might have difficulties with falling and injuring themselves and after they receive occupational therapy, and sometimes it might mean that they need physical therapy, it really helps them with their coordination and their gross motor skills. Now, another expert that's also very, very important for families who have a child with optic nerve hypoplasia are behavior specialists, or it might be a child psychologist or a family therapist. 
Now, the reason for this is that there are many times that children with optic nerve hypoplasia have very interesting behaviors. Dr. Borchert had reported that many times the children often will demonstrate behaviors that are similar to children with autism. They may not show normal, appropriate social behaviors. Some of them, they might shake and flap their hands. Others will stare at their fingers. Others will just look outside the window and stare at the cars going down the street. Well, these particular types of behaviors are behaviors that really need to be dealt with. And there are behavioral specialists that will teach parents and teachers and brothers and sisters, how can you help the child to not do those particular behaviors? How can you do things so that your child will appear to be, quote, more typical and not draw so much attention? I have had children who have optic nerve hypoplasia, and anything that they would see, they would often have to pick it up and they would wave it in front of their eyes, and then they'd just start banging it on the floor and back in front of their eyes, and they would have a hard time breaking those habits. But with the assistance of behavioral therapists, it was really remarkable how a structured behavioral strategy could be implemented and these behaviors improved. In other cases, it may be that the child needs to have a psychologist or even a psychotherapist to help that child. These children, as they get older, often really benefit from some of this type of psychotherapy. And in cases, they might be doing play therapy where they're using stuffed animals or they're asking the child to draw or they talk and they play out different types of schemes, but it really, really helps. But I also want to ask all of you to consider family therapy as well. When you have a child who does have a vision impairment, it doesn't only affect the child and mom and dad, but it also affects the entire family. Brothers and sisters, very, very often, they tell me, gosh, I don't know why, but my brother is always getting all the attention. Dad and mom are always driving him to his appointments, and we have all of these other doctors and therapists, specialists who help out my brother, and nobody ever thinks about me. It really is a very, very big problem for the siblings, the brothers and sisters, and many times these children really grow up to resent their their brother or sister who has a vision impairment. So it might be that a family therapist could be helpful. It might be that Wednesday nights is a night that either mom or dad will have a one-on-one night with one of the other siblings. Or it might be that they might do something special together on a particular night of the week where maybe they go bike riding, maybe they go to the gym and they work out, or whatever it is, but that type of family therapy could be very, 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 very helpful. Another thing that we also think about as children get older is that many of the children may also benefit from having educational therapy. An educational therapist is more than just a tutor. These are experts who do understand how children learn and they often will develop the most optimal treatment program to teach your child in the best way that he or she can. For example, some children are more auditory, others are more visual, others are more tactile. 
But depending on what is your child's best learning modality, the educational therapist can implement treatments to help your child to succeed in school. Now, if you do not know whether your child is more visual or auditory or verbal, you can often have educational psychologists perform testing and they could provide you with that kind of input. But very often, children who have vision impairment often are not being taught in a way that really serves them to their real strengths. For example, there are many times that just because a child has optic neuropipoplasia, the teachers will recommend that the child learns in a verbal way or an auditory way. But it's very, very common that children do not have strong auditory skills, and I see it all the time where the child who is legally blind is actually very strong visually. Just because they can't see the letters on the eye chart, that does not mean that their strength doesn't lie with processing information visually. So overall, you could see that for children with optic nerve hypoplasia, it truly is a syndrome. It's very, very common that the child with optic nerve hypoplasia may have behavior problems, attention problems, speech problems, coordination problems, and these problems that the child has also affects the entire family, the siblings, the brothers, the sisters, the mom and dad, and everyone else. So by reaching out and trying to get the assistance from these experts, this is something that could be very, very helpful. Now, one of the ways that you might ask for a lot of this assistance it could be that if you do belong to a regional center, you could ask for some of this type of consultation or an evaluation. When your child's in the schools, you could also ask for these types of assistance in consultations. And with this particular type of team approach, you might need to bring in the pediatric optometrist and the pediatric ophthalmologist in for a telephone IEP so that the rest of the IEP team understands that optic nerve hypoplasia is very different, very different than other types of eye conditions, but it is more of a syndrome. And because it is a syndrome, we often need to look at these other areas to help the child to do uh, his or her best. So at this time, we're going to go ahead and let's open up to questions. we got about 15 minutes or so, and I'd like for any of you who has comments to share, you may share that. And if you have questions, go ahead and, and ask questions. So unmute your phone right now by pressing star 6, and uh, Sue and I will take some questions. Hi, this is Dallas. Um Orange County. Hi. Um, Brayden's going to be turning five in September, and he currently goes to the Blind Children's Learning Center in Santa Ana, California. And we've been talking about transitioning him into kindergarten, which is a huge fear of mine because he's kind of in between a lot of things. Um, functional vision can be up to 2010, and other times it's light perception. It just kind of depends on where he's at mentally. Um, we also have an appointment tomorrow with Dr. Borcher uh, to kind of see where he's at and what's going on him once a year. So what is the best way to get an accurate vision reading on him? 
Because like I'm saying, you know, one point they're saying 2010, another time he's running into walls. Yeah, what that really sounds like to me is that it is not really only a situation here about his vision, but it sounds like your son is having either attention differences. In other words, on one day his attention may be better than another. Um, it might be cooperation differences. And it may actually be that on different days he is not able to attend quite as well and his vision measures somewhat differently. Um, based on where you're at, I would recommend that you would ask uh, some of the folks, such as Dr. Kathy Heyman, perhaps, from the Southern California College of Optometry, to do a functional vision assessment. And these visual assessments should be done at different times of the day and even perhaps at different locations. Okay, yeah, so, she does see him at the school. Uh, yep. She's the one that told me that his vision's measuring up to the 2010. So, yes. Hmm. Now, we would want her to do the assessments at different locations, so at, at school and maybe at home and then maybe even at the clinic. And we want okay. to go ahead and to measure many, many different visual skills. For example, most people mistakenly think that 2020 or 2200 or that visual acuity number tells us what the child sees. But in reality, it only tells us what types of detail the child could see from a distance of 20 feet. So we really want to find out, does your son see colors? And which colors does he see? Can he see things of low contrast, for example, something written in pencil? What is his peripheral vision? Can he see through the corners of his eyes? What is his depth perception like? Does and what age is it? Can you generally find out all of that? And these are things that we will begin to evaluate these visual skills quite accurately at about 12 months. Okay. Now, you might then ask, well, my son doesn't speak. And a child does not have to speak in order for the doctors to identify this information. Now, once you get the functional vision report, I think at that point in time, it may be that we want to then find out whether or not a psychotherapist or a psychologist or if anybody in that field feels that there might be a true attention problem or is his attention and behavior variable because there's a hormonal problem. So if he has not had an endocrine examination, I would recommend that. Now, once we get all of this kind of information, including the occupational therapy evaluation, because many children can't pay attention because they have difficulties with what is called their proprioception, which helps them to sit still. But once you get all of these reports, I think then the question may be, would it be better for him at this point to repeat another year? Because if he is not at a point where he is ready to learn numbers and letters, he may actually develop worse behaviors in kindergarten if everybody is doing academic things and he simply can't do it. Right, which is my fear of going into a school without, at the Blind Children's Learning Center, he has all services on campus. 
So in a day, he can have his occupational therapy, his vision therapy, his play therapy. He has that all there. So in an elementary school, he may not have those right in front of him. And it may be. I, I really am a big fan of the Blind Children's Learning Center in Santa Ana. And I, I would also suggest that the team that's working with your son, it may be that he stays at Blind Children's Learning Center until he he matures a bit more and is a bit better suited to go to a public school where he will not receive perhaps as much support. Sue, what are some of your thoughts? Oh, well, I I would I, – I'm not sure which school district you will be um, um, going into, but I'd also recommend maybe um, making a contact with a teacher of the visually impaired from the school district where he will be attending. He would be eventually attending and then um, maybe developing some sort of, you know, a, a big beginning to develop a conversation with her about him so that they could become familiar with him. You've probably already done that through transition meetings. But um, I, I think it, you know, certainly is something to consider to repeat another year or have him stay if you feel more comfortable with him being there. Um, but also just bringing in the team from the school district to be able to have, you know, understanding of him and be able to begin assessments so they can be, begin to, you know, share those assessments with the school district so he, he will be prepared when that, when that day happens, when he does transition. Another thing that I would recommend that you would monitor is to monitor his attention and behavior with the foods that he eats. I am so surprised at how many children truly do have food allergies. Some children are allergic to cold milk, other dairy products. I've seen other children who are allergic to food colorings, and it makes such a difference in their behavior. And so a pediatrician or allergist might be able to make some recommendations if there has been allergies that have been identified. But I think that you're you're on the right track, and I understand your, your concerns, but I would go ahead and try to get these uh, evaluations, consultations by the team that we talked about, and then try to set up uh, a meeting. Okay. Thank you very much. Good luck. I know it's, it's a big step. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. <laughs> well, you know, we also want all of you to know that if you do have questions, let's say that you do get the reports from the doctors and the occupational therapists and so on and so forth, please feel free. You may contact uh, me, and you could mm -hmm. contact me by email at Dr. Bill Foundation, I'm sorry, Dr. Bill, D-R-B-I-L-L -L Foundation at gmail.com. And Sue, are you uh, uh, able to give out mm -hmm. your email for sure. the sure. callers? Yeah, uh, if there's anything that we can assist with at Braille Institute, uh, my um, email address is S. Strafasi, S-T-R-A-S as in Frank, A-C-I, at BrailleInstitute.org. And I'm sure Dr. Bill would be great in answering all your medical questions. Is there anything I can do in terms of maybe, you know, helping you, direct you to any kind of services in your own area or help you with any suggestions? I'm happy to do that. Okay, next question, please.
Does anybody have another question or a comment or anybody want to share some of their experience of what they have found to be helpful for their children? Hi there. This is Jean Fultz again. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, Hallie is my granddaughter who's 17 months old, and I said at the beginning that she has no functional vision, and we are making perhaps an assumption about that because she does not appear to respond to ambient light or any kind of indoor lighting, but she squints her eyes and does protective things and becomes, you know, it appears to be painful to her to have bright sunlight in her face. And so... Uh, uh, those types of findings that you're, you're describing, those are very, very encouraging findings. Okay. Those are very, very encouraging findings because yeah. it then tells us that she is able to perceive light and she may be able to perceive high contrast patterns and objects. So one of the things that's very, very important is to make certain that you do have a low vision optometrist or a low vision ophthalmologist in your area who can perform that type of functional vision assessment. Yeah. And, and the doctor will then provide you with recommendations and exercises and activities that will encourage your granddaughter to use that level of vision. So, for example, uh, if your granddaughter, is she walking? She is not walking. She is um, actually just about four weeks into rolling over, and we're mm -hmm. right now learning to be up on hands and knees. Okay. So she's not yet crawling either. Yes, yeah, so it sounds as though she's having some gross motor delays. And yeah. just like we said, that many children with optic nerve hypoplasia, they have many issues. When, when a child is slow to roll over or to sit up, when they don't have those gross motor skills, they often don't have the gross motor skills to reach for something and to grab it accurately, or sometimes they have difficulty with orienting their body. So I would really recommend that make certain that she does receive the occupational therapy, the physical therapy, and we also want to make certain that we don't have a endocrine disorder that might be affecting some of these areas. Yes. So, she actually has been evaluated by endocrinology and um, in Syracuse, uh, New York, and also a developmental a, a doctor, a pediatric developmental delay kind of specialist. Good, good. So, yeah, and okay. she has been receiving occupational and physical therapy for mm, about five months now. She was about okay. a year old. And we now have a teacher for the visually impaired in our area. It was a little bit difficult and time-consuming to get early intervention <laughs> services on board. So mm -hmm. it's yeah. been a bit of a struggle, but we're working on improving these things, and she's certainly doing better now. But I guess one of the questions I also have is she seems to, we are, again, in an area where we have educated ourselves to a degree where we know more than many people around us, <laughs> as is often the case, I'm sure, with, you know, people who have um, mm -hmm. rare or semi-rare disorders, but... Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we discovered early on was that she had trouble with textures and she had mm -hmm. some oral defensiveness, which we overcame. Uh, she still has trouble 
putting feeding herself because she will eat things that she now won't touch, but at least she's eating better. However, mm-hmm. she has a lot of gastric problems and uh, bowel issues, and I keep finding that that seems to be a common factor, and do you know why that is? I, I do not know. I do not know what is the cause of those types of gastrointestinal types of problems, but it, again, maybe we, we want to look to see, does she happen to have any types of allergies? Mm-hmm. Allergies can definitely mm-hmm. cause these types of gastrointestinal problems. So I think if she's not feeling well, that's going to affect her behavior and development. But now that she's beginning to roll, I would really strongly recommend that you ask your teacher for the visually impaired to bring over a light box. And the light box has different high-contrast patterns. So you could position that next towards her, and in a darkened room, you could turn on the light box, and we want her to start to roll towards it. You might put a little speaker behind it. So maybe you have a little tape recorder and it's playing some lullabies or music that she likes. And then you move the light box to a different area because we already know that she could see the light. And we want her to start to move towards the light. And we want her to start to reach towards it. And then as she improves, we then move on and graduate up to the iPad or an iPhone. But it really sounds to me as though she's starting to make some real gains. It just seems that her general overall developmental stage right now, she's at a younger stage. So Mm -hmm. I think that let's really investigate the medical issues to get her feeling as good as possible. And, Mm -hmm. uh, again, I don't know why this is, but I often see the greatest developmental gains between the ages of 24 and 36 months. Okay, so I think you're doing the right things. Get these other types of workups and keep working with her, and I think that you're going to be seeing some real good gains very soon. Mm-hmm. Does anybody else have another question out there? I have a, I have a question. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, I have a student who the eye report said she had optic nerve hypoplasia, but also optic atrophy. Are those two mm-hmm. separate things? Yeah, the question is, are optic nerve hypoplasia and optic nerve atrophy the same things? And the answer is no. Optic nerve hypoplasia is when the optic nerve is very small, and optic atrophy is when the optic nerve is damaged. So it, it, is, it is possible that the child could have both conditions, but I sort of question that diagnosis. Okay, so probably just optic nerve hyperplasia? I would, I would think so, unless the child suffered from a lack of oxygen or some type of of toxicity if the child was exposed to different types of medications or alcohol or drug abuse. Okay, thank you. Uh, Yes, Uh uh-huh. Bill? Yes, question please. Hi, yes, I have a question. I recently got a new student. He has optic nerve hypoplasia. He's almost four years old. And both of his eyes, um, 
look to the right. So it looks like he has a, a hemianopsia. And I'm wondering, um, I don't know if he has peripheral loss on the left side or what's causing him to look to the right. Okay. And uh, the question is, this four-year-old boy with optic nerve hypoplasia moves his eyes to the right. Now, that may be a couple of things. Number one, it may be that this child has nystagmus, the uncontrollable shaking of the eyes, like many children like many children with optic nerve hypoplasia, they often have nystagmus, and sometimes if they move their eyes to one direction or the other, their eyes do not shake as much, and that helps them to see. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is it may be that the nerve fibers of the optic nerve that did not develop may be the nerves that are responsible for peripheral vision, and this child is moving the eyes to the right so that he could use the peripheral vision on his left side to see. So these are things that are really quite difficult to diagnose if you're not an eye doctor, So I would really recommend that this child gets a functional vision exam by a low vision optometrist, and the child should also be evaluated for prism glasses and also eye muscle surgery. Okay. So, for example, if we find out that this child is moving his eyes to the right because that stops the nystagmus, Uh then then the use of prism glasses or eye muscle surgery could move the eye straight. Yeah. And then, and then he'll look more typical, okay? Okay, thank so, you. Yeah, so get a low vision examination. Thank you. Okay, how about one more question? Do we have one more question out there? No. No? Hello? Dr. Bill? Yes, hi. Do you have one last question? I do, actually. My son, Ryan, he's 18 months old. He has um, septo-optic dysplasia. And unfortunately, when he was 10 months old, he developed infantile spasms. Um, He's on a medication called Vigabitrin, which is known for causing irritability and mood swings. But Hmm. it's become much more, he's become much, much more irritable lately. And I'm just wondering if, as he's, getting older and with the SOD diagnosis, if the um, anti-seizure meds are kind of a little more intense for him as opposed to a typically developing child? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Well, the first thing is that um, your child has these infantile spasms and the medications being used to reduce that, they often do cause these significant behavior or mood problems. So I have found that many, many neurologists may often change the medication or reduce the dosage. Very often as a child gets older also that they may reduce the dosage because I have seen many children with the infantile spasms that as they've gotten older, they didn't need as much of the medications. So I think it's really important to explain this to your neurologist, but also to remember that Medications, even though they are prescribed, 
with a very, very precise intention, uh, some kids just don't react well to medications. And when you see that his mood is very, very poor, then uh, that really makes it very difficult for him to develop and to respond well to all the other therapies he's receiving. So I might then explain to the neurologist that you're really seeing a very, very poor response with respect to his behavior with his medication and see if there's something else or a different dosage. Okay. Okay? Thank you. Okay, great. Well, we want to thank all of you for tuning in this evening, and we hope that this information was helpful. If you know of others who are interested in optic nerve hypoplasia, we will have this podcast up on the webpage perhaps by Friday. And, again, you could find it at www.brailleinstitute.org and also at www.airsla.org. And, Sue, how about next month? What do we have on topic for next month? Yeah, we'll be meeting again on June the 12th, and we'll be talking a little about technology, um, about technology for young children under under uh, age of six, and I'm sure we'll be talking a bit about the iPad and other um, aspects of, of technology that you might want to tune in for, and I'm sure Dr. Bill can give us a good overview of some of the things that will be coming, uh, will be on the horizon for your children as well. So great. Yeah, that sounds really good. So uh, thanks to all of you again. We really, really can't tell you how much we appreciate you guys calling in from all over the country. So thank uh, you. you guys uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next month. Good night. Good night, everybody. Thanks again. Good night.